You see, it happens almost every single time that I get on a plane, and I, I wish I could figure out how to not make it happen, um, but I end up in the same situation, where I get on a plane, and there's still about an hour left in the plane ride until I reach my destination, and I've run out of entertainment options. I, I get to the point where uh, the, the, I don't want to watch any of the other movies. I'm not someone that enjoys talking to the people that sit next to me on a plane. Um, you can judge me for what that says about me. And then maybe I've already finished my book. The Wi-Fi isn't working. And so I find myself staring at a scenario where there's an hour left of a plane ride. I'm like, what do I do now? And, and, and I get a hard time for this, but what happens every time is I pull out my phone, I click on the Photos app, and I scroll back as far as I possibly can in my photos and just click on an old photo. And then I just start swiping. And I, I just, I'll spend an hour just recollecting and reminiscing on old photographs and old times, um, whether it's with family or friends. And I think photos are, are sort of a, a powerful thing. Um, they're, they're, they're powerful, they're fascinating because they transport us back to a different time, a time that's not the present moment. So when we look at a photo, we get transported back to a different time in our life. And, and, and maybe you've been there. I mean, now with, with Facebook and the cloud, we have a, a million different ways to store photos um, we can, so that we can keep them all on one device or all on one computer and we can go back and look as far back as we want to and we're sitting on a plane and we have nothing left to do. But also, I wonder if you're like me, that, that even with the gift that is technology, that, that sometimes opening up an old photo album, an old hard copy photo album, that there's nothing like that. And maybe you've been there. I, I, whether it's working with a photo album, looking through a photo album that it has pictures of you and a friend, you and a sibling, you and a family member, you and a spouse, I'd imagine that looking through that photo album did something for you. I'd imagine it stirred up some kind of emotion, some kind of sentiments around what it was to experience, to be, be hearkened back, to reminisce that extra moment in time, that time before um, where, where you could be together with somebody else, that where you could experience a relationship with someone in the past. And, and maybe if you're like me, you've spent time looking through photo albums, and I've definitely done that, but I've also spend some time observing and watching people who go through photo albums as they sift through, who are maybe a little bit more seasoned in life than me, maybe a little bit more my senior. They have a, a longer amount of time in their life to fill up a photo album with photos. So as they're reminiscing, they're reminiscing years past in ways that, that maybe I can't. And, but here's the thing that I find that happens almost every single time that I observe somebody who's maybe a little bit more seasoned in life as they look through their old photo album, is, is, is they'll, they'll come to a picture, they'll flip to a picture that has a specific picture of them in a relationship with somebody else. It's a picture of them and someone else. And then they'll say something, to, something like this. They'll say, ah, I remember when I used to be good friends with him. Or they'll say, ah, that picture, that was back when your grandfather and I, that was when we were truly in love, when we actually loved each other. Or, or, or they'll say, gosh, it feels like just yesterday that he and I, we, we actually got along. We actually had fun together. And then, and then there's sort of this long pause, and, and they take a, a big sigh and, and then remark something to the effect of, but now, now it's just not the same 
we just don't get along like we used to. And, and honestly, it, it's, it's always intrigued me. I've always been intrigued by how our relationships, how our relationships, when, like, is given by example when we're going through a fellow album, can go from, from so remarkable, so high, to so broken, or just simply non-existent. How, how does... How do, how do siblings who grow up in the same household spend all the time together, have so much fun together? How do so many years later they end up being anxious or just simply upset by the idea of even being in the same room as each other, having to talk to each other? How do, how do parents or couples who once cuddled up and they're so effusive in their love on a premarital counseling session couch, how do so many years later they end up so hardened and just hateful towards each other? How do workmates or friends who, who had just great relationship that, that took their business or took their friendship to crazy soaring heights that impacted so many other people, people looked at that relationship and said, I want to be like that. How do people who have that type of relationship all of a sudden end up crashing and burning and, and having a relationship that is so broken or so non-existent? I just wondered how this happens. And, and I think, uh, as, as I've reflected on this, as, and, and honestly, as we've started to search the scriptures for, for how these things happen and why they happen, I've come to at least the conclusion that I think the answer is pretty complicated. That there's not a simple answer, and some of it has to do with what Pastor Dan shared with us in the first week of our Remarkable Relationship series. Some of it has to do with the idea that, that some of us just have never experienced this 1 Corinthians 13 type of love that God offers us. And so we, have, we, don't, we just don't have the conception or the experience that, that this type of love, this type of relationship is actually possible. And so that's part of the reason how, how we don't have relationships that reach that level of remarkable. And then some of it is part of what T Pastor Tara Beth shared with us last week, is that some of our relationships just get weighed down and, and, and aren't remarkable, so to speak, because we end up just kind of selfishly entangled in our own stuff, so we can't actually accept and appreciate the differences and maybe the good differences that, are, that exist in other people. And I think that happens too. But, but as I've reflected on it and as I've uh, considered what the scriptures have to say, the more and more I've become convinced that I think one of the main reasons, one of the major reasons that our relationships go from this, this soaring height, this this high-flying kite that we've been using, the illustration we've been using in this series, to being plummeted down to this type of regular relationship, or even worse, the broken relationship, the non-existent relationship. The reason that that happens is because I just think we don't know how to communicate sometimes. That sometimes, frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, we're just not good communicators. We don't communicate in a way that's honoring to God that the string of our kite, the string of ourself gets so tangled up, so, so convoluted that it starts to drag this, this relationship kite that was soaring so high at the height of Remarkable, and it starts to drag it and weigh it down slowly but surely until it's not at the heights whatsoever. And the Apostle James, specifically in the third chapter of his famous letter in the scriptures, he has a lot to say about this. He has a lot to say about the way in which our communication or our lack of communication impacts our relationships, the way that it causes our relationships to not necessarily reach the height of remarkable. He says this, he says, the tongue 
is a small part of the body, but it exerts an influence disproportionately larger to its size. So he's saying the tongue's small, but it, but it has a, a big influence because of how it lets us use our words. And then, and then he goes on to equate words in some metaphorical ways that are helpful in explaining what he means. He says, words, they're, they're like a bit in the mouth of a stallion, able to turn the animal, the whole animal on its path. He says, words, they're like a rudder, able to alter the direction of a huge ship, to change the ship's course just through one tiny rudder. He says, words, they're like a tiny spark, capable of igniting a phenomenal fire. What James is trying to share with us is that words, words, they're small. They sometimes seem insignificant, but James is, is pretty convinced that our words are powerful, that our words are really, really powerful. He, he says, like these other small things, human speech and human words, they can be used for so much good. When they're used wisely, oh my gosh, when you use words well and wisely, they can unlock the beauty of this world. They can, they can impact so many people in the most positive ways. They can ignite someone into living a life that's so much more called into who they were supposed to be. Words can be the greatest thing that ever existed. And also, words, when, when they're not used well, they can, they can be really harmful. They can hurt, and they can cause a lot of trauma. Uh, and according to James, the, the famous saying, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. According to James, this is just not true. In fact, James might argue the opposite. James might say, uh, sticks and stones, you know, that's one level of potential hurt, but words, that hurts a lot more. They can really hurt. And Mother Teresa put it so well when she said, words which do not use the light of Christ increase the darkness. Words which do not use the light of Christ increase the darkness. And, and James continues on as he's sharing with us about the power of words. He continues on in chapter 3 when he says this. He says, as a result, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And I want to be caveat here. I want to be clear. James isn't speaking of teachers as people who are in some sort of, have an occupation within our educational system. James isn't speaking of those types of teachers. He's not trying to convince you not to volunteer in Sunday school. He's not trying to thin the ranks of public school teachers uh, because the Lord knows we need more people doing that. No, James, when he's speaking of teachers, he's referencing people who, who use their words to instruct others. That, what he says, is a teacher. And so what James is saying then, that given the power of our words, we have to be careful and wise to instruct people in the way, in the, before we instruct people in the error of their ways. That the, that the authority that comes with being a teacher, being someone who uses their authority to instruct people in the error of their ways, that's something that we should pay a lot of attention to. That's something that carries a great amount of weight. Jesus himself has something to say about this. He, he says in Matthew chapter 12, he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. Both James and Jesus are pretty aligned in what they're saying here. They're saying our words matter, that they have the power to impact people, and then eventually come around back to us for good or for ill. I don't think there's anybody outside of the scriptures who would agree with this more wholeheartedly than this guy named Jack, Dr. Go John Gottman. 
And, and Gottman, he, he's sort of a legend in the world of relationships. He's, he's kind of the relationship guru in so many, in so many realms of, of psychology. That actually, I took a, a seminary class. The, the, the title of the seminary class, the topic of the seminary class was all about how do we, how do we uh, be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our entire being, not just our head knowledge. And almost the entire point of the class was working through Dr. Gottman's thoughts on relationships and communication. He's sort of the expert of the expert of the experts. He's actually, he's kind of famous in counseling circles because he has this thing where within, with over a 90% hit rate, he can meet couples, and within just a minute of knowing them, with over 90% success, he can dictate whether or not the relationship's gonna succeed or fail. The man knows relationships really well. And one of the things in, in his research he notes is that the overwhelming reason that our relationships fall apart is because the people that were once close together, that they gradually grew apart and they lost a sense of closeness, love, and respect. So what Gottman's saying is, he's not saying, gosh, the, way, the reason that relationships fail is because there's just this huge moment of tension where all of a sudden, bam, everything explodes, and then the relationship goes off the rails after that. No, 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 Gottman's saying, actually, most relationships, it's the opposite. Most relationships, they go from this soaring kite, this remarkable level of relationships, and just slowly but surely over time, the kite gets dragged down and the relationship starts to sink. Gottman says that's far more likely what happens when a relationship doesn't go well. But the thing that has obsessed Gottman more than anything is, is not that figuring out, oh, that relationships can go poorly. I think anybody could, could look around and observe and say, yeah, there are a lot of broken relationships in the world. The thing that has obsessed Gottman is figuring out what, why and how does this happen? What is it about how we do relationships that causes our soaring kite to be dragged down into brokenness or just the simple non-existence of relationships. And, and what he ultimately identifies, he identifies that there's four different ways that we use words. There's four different patterns of using words that have a, have a direct impact in bringing the, the height of our kite in this type of remarkable relationship and weighing it down into non-existence or brokenness. And I think if we're going to take the Apostle James seriously when he warns about the power of words, and then he says, words are important and they're really powerful, then I think we just have to, we have to dig into what Gottman says of here's, when you use words this way, here's how they go poorly. And so for all of the other people in your life that have all of the relationship troubles that you obviously don't have, I thought it might be helpful for us to explore what Gottman says of here's, here's what happens. Here's how relationships go, go poorly. He's got, he's got four ways, four uses of words. And, and one of them is what he calls criticism. And, and, and before your mind goes there, I want to be fair and make sure you know that there's, I want to make sure we're careful about what we say when, what criticism is. So criticism, every, every relationship has some sort of healthy dialogue around expectations and performance. So that's not criticism. Criticism is not when you say, hey, I, I'm really disappointed and bummed that that you didn't take out the recycling this morning because I thought we had agreed that 
every Thursday morning, you are going to be responsible for that. And it's actually a big bummer to me when that doesn't happen. That's not criticism. That's just you expressing a feeling and giving the other person an opportunity to say, hey, I hear that, and I can actually, I can actually improve our relationship by being better in that in the future. I have hand up. That's been me a few times, uh, not taking on the recycling. <laughs> criticism, Gottman says, is different. It's an attack at someone. Criticism is when you're going after someone. When you're going after their personhood, their character. Criticism is when you're attacking them in their self. Criticism sounds like this. Why are you so lazy and forgetful? Are you kidding me? I've asked you literally to take out the recycling a million times, and you never remember to do it. It's unbelievable. I, I ask you all the time to do things, and you seem to just completely ignore me. I hope you can feel the difference there. I hope you can feel the difference of, yeah, that's criticism. And I think few things can hurt us more than, than when we feel the attack of when someone attacks our, our personhood and our character. And, but I would imagine if they were honest with ourselves that, that it's more often than we'd like to admit where we're on one side or the other of criticism, where we've felt we've been on the, on the end of receiving criticism or when we've been on the end of distributing criticism, when we've actually gone after someone in that sort of attacking way. The second weight that Gottman talks about, the second weight that continually pulls down the soaring kite strings of our relationships is that of contempt. This is, contempt's an attack on people, but, but it's, not a, it's not attacking them as their personality or anything. Contempt's when we just go after someone because we're trying to insult them or demean them. Contempt is when we want to make sure they feel like you're not at my level. When he mentions criticism, or I'm sorry, when he mentions contempt, he's talking about when, when, when you've had a really, really crazy night and, and, and you didn't finish that homework assignment for, the, for class the next day, so you walk into your class and, and you walk up to your teacher and you're like, hey, I'm so sorry, I, I didn't get to finish this assignment. And you start to say, because, and the teacher interrupts you. And the teacher flails their hands and says, let me guess, the dog ate your homework again. That's contempt. It, it's when, it's when a, a sibling is tasked with the idea of, hey, you're going to be in charge of deciding where we go to dinner tonight. And this person is really a thorough decision maker. They want to check all the boxes. They want to figure out what's the best food, what's the best drink, what's the best kind of atmosphere. We're going to have to dinner as a family. This is a big deal. So they spend multiple minutes making this decision. And they finally, they've checked all the boxes. They decide, I want to go here. I think we should go here as a family. And contempt is when the other sibling pipes up and says, ah, well, Miss Indecisive finally made a decision. Congratulations. Here's a medal. I'm so proud of you. It's about time you made a decision. You see, contempt comes through this type of sneering and sarcasm and humor, but, it, but it, the humor backed by this type of hostility. You know, it's, it's even heavier than criticism, I think, because underlying contempt is this sort of lack of respect. That, that contempt, people that use contempt, they sometimes say, well, you know, that's just how I am. You know me. I'm, I'm just teasing with you. Or it's like, obviously, that was a joke. Come on, you're being so insensitive. But when you're on the receiving side of contempt, when you're on the other side of contempt, it hurts a lot. 
I mean, when you feel so small, so insignificant, so disdained, you feel like this person doesn't think that I matter. That's what contempt does to people. The third thing, the third weight that Gottman talks about is defensiveness. Is, this, is, this is the victim play where we just get to make all the excuses. You know, defensiveness is when, when one person says, one spouse says to their partner, hey, I would really appreciate it if you could make it a priority to, to be home from work in time for us to put the kids to bed. You know, bedtime is just, it's really crazy. I could do it on my own, but, but it'd just be way more valuable if we had two sets of hands doing it. It gets kind of chaotic. I know work's crazy for you, but I just really appreciate it. Could you make that effort? Could you make that a priority for me? That would be a huge gift. And defensiveness is when the other person steps back and says, oh my gosh, I can't do anything right around here. Like, what else am I doing wrong? I mean, it's impossible to make you happy. One second, I, I, you're, you're complaining or you're always worried that we don't have enough money to, or we're not financially stable enough to do the things that we always want to do or you want to do or, or we want to do for our kids. And so I feel like I have to work, work, work. And then the next second you're complaining because I'm working too much and I'm never home. And it's, it's literally impossible to make you happy. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells all the time just waiting for the next time that you're going to point out how I'm not perfect, how I'm not good enough, how I'm just the one that's always screwing it up. And it's honestly... It's exhausting. You see, defensiveness, it, it's when, we, it's when we, we flip the tables. There's a saying in sports, the best defense is a good offense. Defensiveness is, is, has, has no interest in actually helping a relationship move forward or improve. Defensiveness is just us saying, hey, I just want to make sure I come out good in, the, in this argument or this conflict. I'm, I'm going to protect myself because everybody else they're really the problem. And you see, pretty soon what happens when we engage with someone who goes to defensiveness as a, as a tactic is that people just stop bringing things up. People just stop bringing up issues with people who always get defensive. Because the, the idea is that uh, eventually you know how they're going to react. You know, when I bring up an issue with someone who always goes to defensiveness, I know it's just going to get thrown back on me. I know how this is going to end. And honestly, it's just not worth it because it never actually does anything. So instead, people resign themselves to just sort of silently suffering. Or, or, or they just slowly let the relationship drift apart. It's like, it's not even worth saying anything. What good is it going to do? In the fourth weight stonewalling is typically what comes after we've already mixed in some of these other three weights. Y and it happens more likely to admit, we'd like to admit, and teenagers are really good at this. It goes like this. Mom, mom's starting to get a little bit concerned about teenage daughter Sally's. Grades are slipping. She's noticing some behavior that's not great. And so uh, Sally's on her way home from school one day, and mom's getting ready. She's like, we have to confront this today. We got to talk about this. This needs to be addressed. So Sally gets home, and mom just goes in on her. She lets her have it. Criticism, contempt, the whole nine yards. And as she's giving her pitch, Sally's listening, and she considers putting up a defense. She considers, you know, I'm going to push back on this. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to argue back. But then Something clicks in Sally's head, and Sally thinks, no, I'm going to opt for something different. I, 
I have a better option, the option of silence. And so mom goes through the whole charade, and she finishes, and Sally just stares at her blankly with no emotion whatsoever and mutters, okay, and then heads straight to her room. And for a week, Sally comes home late, goes straight to her room, and only uses one form of communication to talk to her mom the entire time. And the form of communication is the silent stare. That's all her mom gets. And understandably, it drives her mom insane. You know, she tries to get Sally to engage with her, but no matter how hard she tries, it's just not going to work. You see, stonewalling, when it happens, stonewalling doesn't even give any option for a relationship to improve. We've, we've literally built a wall between us and the other person that says, there's no chance of this going anywhere. I'm not even going to engage with you. I wonder if any of these scenarios resonate. I wonder if any of this sounds the least bit familiar. <laughs> Uh, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, stonewalling, they're all around us. I mean, you see it in, in sibling relationships, marital relationships, family relationships, work relationships, friend relationships, the list goes on and on. And then if you step back one thing further, you can see it in the grander scale of our world today, playing out in larger spheres. You see all of these things happening within, between political parties, amongst different races, religions, the list goes on and on. And a friend of mine always says, if you really want to see these things, if you really want to see criticism pop up, just log into Facebook. It's one thing to notice them just in general on a larger scale, but if you get on social media, it goes crazy. It's 10 times worse. All you have to do is open a comment section, and I promise you you'll find one, if not two, if not three, if not all four of these things. And it just take two minutes of looking. James has some more thoughts on this in chapter 3 of his apostle. He says, All of us stumble in many ways with our words. And he says, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, then they are a perfect person. And so unless you find yourself to be that perfect person, which in, in that case, I would love to meet you after service. I'll be right up here. I think I could learn a lot from you. Unless you find yourself to be that perfect person, then James is pretty adamant that all of us have some complicity in this. James is pretty convinced, given what he knows about humanity, that we're going to find ourselves in, in the list that, that I just outlined from Gottman. And I think it's possible that you haven't given much thought to the way that you speak recently. Honestly, most of us don't consider it in our daily life. Uh, and, and we definitely don't consider maybe some of the ways that we might be complicit in the things that I've just shared with us. Honestly, because it happens all around us all the time, and so when we do it, we don't even notice it because it's not that different than the rest of what's going on around us. And so we just kind of become numb to it. We just assume that's how it is. 
We don't even notice. And, and then even as I'm speaking, I'd imagine that if we were to have to self-assess, self-diagnose, and say, well, okay, where do I fit in in all of this? I would imagine most of us would go to a thought of saying, you know, okay, fine, I, I, I admit it, I blow up every once in a while. I, I kind of, you know, in my worst moments, I'm not great. But if you're like putting them on a scale and you're going to weigh all the, all the nice things and all the bad things that I say, I, I think the nice kind of gets higher. Plus, I mean, I'm here this morning. Like, I'm using my words to glorify God. Like, that's got to be extra brownie points, right? Then the scale is really going to turn. We should be good. But, but James is also pretty aware of this. Is, he knows that's exactly what we're going to think, and that's how we might react in the midst of all of this. And so he keeps going. It's like James never lets up. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse others who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be, James concludes. With the same mouth we praise God and then curse and speak poorly to the people that he loves, that he cares for, that he made in his own image. I've noticed this contradiction. I hope you have too. And James says this should not be. It shouldn't be because we can't develop the types of relationships that we want with this contradiction in place. We can't have God-honoring, loving, caring, remarkable relationships if we, if we are in the contradiction where, where we, we talk all the time and we come to church and we praise God and then it's Tuesday and our words maybe don't exactly line up with that. Now, if this was a self-help talk and the idea was, okay, the goal is just, could you just be a better person? Then we could, we'd be done. Um, and, and likely what would happen is that you'd leave here with one of two thoughts. You'd either leave here getting ready to blame or you'd leave here feeling lots of shame. So, so you'd wa- what would happen is, is you'd walk out these doors and you'd be ready to blame everybody. The finger pointing would be come out and you'd say, you've got to listen to this sermon because he's talking about you. <laughs> this, is how, this is how you've ruined our relationship. This is how all the other people in my life, this is how they've hurt me. And honestly, that, there's probably some truth to that. I guarantee you, if you've lived for more than five minutes on this earth, you've been hurt by people in their words on this earth. That's absolutely been true. But the other option that you'd leave is you'd leave feeling all this shame. You'd leave thinking, oh, no, he's talking about me. And, and then you'd walk out kind of shoulder slumped, tail between your legs, as my dog would do. And you'd be feeling like, I just want to go crawl into a hole. I, I can, I, what do I do now? But here's the beautiful thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers us a third way to interact with what James is sharing. That that the gospel of Jesus Christ allows us to acknowledge the brokenness of our relationships. It says, yeah, we've probably been on both sides. We've been on the receiving end, and we've probably been on the giving end. But the good news of Jesus is that through the power of love that God offers us, that we're free. 
that because of this 1 Corinthians type of love that God offers us, that we don't have to do the shame or the blame thing, that we're free of having to go out and cast blame on other people, and we're free of having to go out and feel all this shame for ourselves. Why are we free? Because at the end of the day, we know that the God of the universe, the creator of all things good, looks at us and says, you're the most magnificent, amazing, valuable thing that ever existed. And no matter what side you end on, on the blame side or on the shame side, I still have you. I still think you matter. And so we're free of getting stuck in one of those two ditches. And then what that freedom does is that it allows us to humbly admit our wrongdoings and humbly admit our faults. That the freedom of feeling that type of love from God, knowing that we can't do anything to unearn that type of love, that frees us to say, hand up. Hey, I'm so sorry. I've messed this up. I've been talking in that way. I've been using words in that way. Because we know deep down that we're still loved by the creator of the universe, so we're compelled to say, I actually want this relationship to be better. And I'll be the first one to put a hand up and say, I've, I've messed up. I've done those four things. I mean, more often than I'd like to admit. And the love of God, which leads us to a humble admission of the ways we fall short, it also, it also compels us to want more. So not only does it allow us to humbly say, hand up, but it also compels us to say, I, I actually want more from my relationships. I want to know how a poor or a regular way of communicating gets replaced by a better way of communicating, by, a, so to speak, a remarkable way of communicating. The love of Jesus causes us to seek out this better way. And that better way is something that we'll explore next week and we'll continue to explore in our time together as we're evaluating our relationships in this Remarkable Relationship series. But for today, but for today, I would love and I hope that each of us, each of you, would let the power of the Holy Spirit open your eyes to the ways in which maybe you've seen these four things in your own life. That you would be willing to sit with that for this week even if it's uncomfortable. Please pray with me. Lord, as no one does, you know the reality of our relationships and the part we play in them. We ask your forgiveness and the forgiveness of those we have hurt, knowingly and unknowingly, for our careless way with words. You have said in your word that the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. As we go forth today, seeking to live anew, help us to find our way into this, this type of living, your type of living. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.